0: Grateful, we're a little, you know, podunk church in the forest, and to to have a, um, the gift of such beautiful harmony on a Sunday morning, I think is is such a rich blessing. Um, so thank you to the team, um, and I think also it's a it's a blessing uh, to have um, the choir of the congregation. Like I love that that we sing together. We go and visit other churches, and there's a lot of. Um, there's a lot of production and things that go into it, and there's a lot of beautiful things that happen in other congregations. I'm not saying that we're the only show in town, but I love that we sing together, that everybody raises their voices, good, good voices, bad voices, um, a joyful noise, and that's one of the things that I love about being here. I'm grateful to be your pastor. Let's see how we can get through this today. <laughs> um, if you will please allow me a little bit foolishness uh, this Christmas morning, uh, my first draft of, of this sermon was extensive, three or four pages, and every time I went through it, I like, i got to cut this out, i got to cut this out, and so I've gutted this sermon three or four times, and I think it's probably still too long, but we will go, uh, we'll, we'll work through it, I'll work through it uh, quickly. We've been in this series called Foretold, and it's kind of addressing this, uh, this question of, was Mary's pregnancy unplanned? And if you look at it from an earthly perspective, then yeah, probably it is unplanned. I don't think Mary woke up that morning expecting to have, you know, the Son of God uh, within her body. And there's all kinds of things that we have uh, wrestled with a little bit last week uh, in the morning and in the evening as well. there's, a, there's this tension between our perspective here on earth and the things that we see and the things that we can kind of anticipate, and then also the things that God is doing on a heavenly realm that directly impacts, is directly correlated to what's happening in my daily life. Um, we, don't, we don't, like, look around, and every time there's something bad or frustrating happen, we don't look at that and go, oh, that's a demonic attack. We don't see demons behind every corner. But we do acknowledge that the spiritual realm has a direct impact on the way that our life works. And that's one of the things that, like, we're celebrating at Christmas, is that heaven came down, that God, Spirit, incredible, almighty, creator of all the universe, says, says, the, wor- says the word, and physics exists now. Things that we have been trying to unpack and articulate and understand through uh, scientific observation, how these things work, he just says it and it exists. And that's the mind and the power of God. And he then humbled himself to be born to a construction worker uh, and an unwed wife or an unwed mother in a humble town in a dirty place to be born in a time, in a time, in do you realize Jesus could pick any time in history to be born and he chose on purpose a time where there was no air conditioning. That is a miracle and I don't think we talk about that enough, right? I am blessed by the heat that's running this morning um, and yet, and yet Jesus chose a time where they had to light a fire. Um, so, Jesus came, as we read this morning in Luke chapter 4, uh, to preach good news. He, he reads from a scroll in Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, verses 18, uh, 18 through 21, as, he, as he's beginning kind of his ministry and his teaching. He comes out of the desert and he begins to, um, yeah, you guys are probably right. Let me pause before we get rolling and let's pray together. The sound team's like, yo, you need to stop and pray. I'm like, okay, got it, ready, ready for this. So let's pause together and we'll pray. and the glory forever. Amen. So as Jesus kind of grows up and he's beginning his ministry, he's, he goes and spends some time in the desert and as he comes back from the desert, he goes into town and he gathers uh, with his uh, family and community on, on a Saturday Saturday and uh, it's common for them to gather together and to read scripture. Like that was what they did. So they hand him a scroll. They, "Would you like to read today?" And he's like, "Sure, I'll read today." And they, he opens it up to uh, to Isaiah. Rolls the scroll over to Isaiah. Like we we scroll like this. They scrolled like this, going through the scroll. But that's a different technology. It's fine. And he says, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He's anointed me to proclaim good news." To the poor, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he sits down and says, today this has been fulfilled. And I'm going, but I I know that blind people still exist. I know the poor are still oppressed. I know um, that uh, there are still problems in the world. Like what? What does he mean by all of this? At the end of chapter 4, in verse 43, uh, he says, he's, 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 he's leaving now. He's, he's preached, and he's healed some people, and now he's leaving, and he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So the reason he came was so that he could preach the good news of the kingdom of God. He himself is the hope of all the world, but then if he came and he preached the good news and he was incarnate, he, he became flesh, he did the thing, he, the author of the book stepped into the story to redeem the thing. Like, why then is the world still so broken? We cried at breakfast this morning for those that aren't with us. There's aspects of, of, of the season that are joyful and, and those joy things sometimes just put into contrast the sorrows that we feel about how things are not the way they're meant to be. If he came to proclaim good news, why is it still bad? A couple pages over in Luke chapter 10. He's, he's, he's gathering together his disciples Now, we think of his disciples as being 12, but he actually had more than 12. There were other people that that followed him other than just the 12. And here, after this, in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, after this, Uh, Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two in every town and every place where he was himself about to go. So he's getting ready to go on a tour and he sends some people out to let them know that he's coming into town. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He sends out 12 as his ambassadors to kind of prepare the way. And, and, and these people, I think, is fascinating. They're literally walking with Jesus, but he's saying, you need to be saturated in prayer. You have to cling to the Father. Ask, even as you're going, with my authority, and I am literally sending you with my own voice, you have to talk to the Father and bathe yourselves in prayer. I think it's important to be reminded that no one grows spiritually apart from prayer. Unless somebody is on their knees, there is no, there is no spiritual growth. And he gives these, like, crazy instructions in verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So take nothing with you. Don't talk to anybody on the way. But as you go into a town, ask that God would show you what house to show up in. You show up in that house, this person's going to be a son of peace. They're going to extend peace to you. They're going to invite you in. Have you ever just met somebody who's just like... Yeah, come into my house, eat my food. Like, there's the fridge, and if you need a bed, I'll make a bed for you. I've got extra beds. Do you need some more blankets? Have you met those kinds of people? I think there are some of them among us today. Like, they just, yeah, of course. Like, of course we would have you in our home. I don't have to know who you are or anything about you. Like, I just want to to love on you. And when you walk into a town and you meet people like that, stay with those people. The disciples were a little bit slow. So Jesus had to tell them, you find somebody who's really hospitable, you should stay with them. But this is the instructions that he says. Okay, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for the laborer deserves his wages. So they're gonna be giving you blessings you don't think you deserve. Just take it and say thank you. You don't have to make excuses for yourself. You can just say thanks and you can give thanks to God for the ways that he's blessing you through other people. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The kingdom of God has come near to you. In other places, as you read the biographies about Jesus, he'll say something like, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. So as he comes, he's proclaiming good news that the kingdom is close. You, you can smell it. You can taste it. There are glimpses that the kingdom is here. It's near, but it hasn't arrived yet. He's explaining in Luke chapter 17 to some Pharisees because he said everywhere he goes he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. It's close. It's close. It's close. It's close. And finally he has to explain to some Pharisees in Luke chapter 17 verse 20. Being asked by some Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come he answered them the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say look here it is or there for behold the kingdom of God is in the midst Of you. It's happening among you now. It's close. It's not here all the way yet, but it's happening. Jesus came to proclaim good news, but it's still bad here sometimes. We might, we might do well maybe to pause, because uh, I can sometimes get ahead of myself and say, hey, so what is, what is the kingdom of God? Like, what are we even talking about here? And I struggled to come up with like a concise definition because this is one of those terms that kind of gets used a little bit for everything. As you read the text, um, sometimes they're using it to mean one thing, and sometimes they're using it to mean another thing. And sometimes they just use the blanket statement kingdom of God, I think to talk about departments of the kingdom of God, in the same way we might talk about the IRS um, and maybe the postal service. Like those two things are the government, right? But we feel very differently about those two branches of the government, don't we? Like, they would be called the government, but we have different emotions towards them. Like, I think sometimes they just say the kingdom of God, and it's like something really good, or sometimes it's something that's really like, I don't know how I feel about that. That makes me uncomfortable, right? So that's the kingdom of God. So what, what is it? It's when creation is properly governed by God according to his statues and design. The kingdom of God is when creation is properly governed by God according to his statutes and designs. It sometimes happens. We sometimes get glimpses of it when we choose to love. When we see glimpses of beauty in the world. When we see uh, something that's been absolutely chaotic brought into order. But we know that's not the way it always works. Actually, it often is working in the opposite direction. Things that are beautiful fall apart. That house that we just built is now needs repairs. Like we just built this thing, why is the sink cracked? We know that things aren't the way they're meant to be, so why? So, I'd like to answer this question, Um, but this is where I really struggled with how much do I say. Like, there's, there's a lot of things. Like the Bible is, I think the Bible is very interested in addressing this question. And it addresses it throughout. Like all over, everywhere you turn, like, that's where God is answering this question. Why are things not the way they're meant to be? And there are a thousand different ways that we could talk about it. But I'd like, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk about the beginning. And I'd like to talk about the end. And I'd just like real quick to put some wrapping paper on it and bring the two together. The the difficulty here is that God is God and and I'm not as smart as him, right? Um, And he has to communicate in ways that I can understand, which sometimes makes it more confusing for me, all right? So I'm just giving you a heads up. There's stuff in here that you're gonna be like, well, I don't know how I feel about all this. Okay, that's cool. Let me show you the two parts, let me bring them together and then we'll close with some application and hopefully we'll be done before 12 o'clock, right? So what I'd like to invite you to do is to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. The fascinating thing about God is that he spends no time whatsoever defending his existence. Um, he just starts off, in the beginning, God created. So if you, if you were here to ask the question, does God exist? God assumes that you know that he made you. He doesn't try to explain it. He just, I made the things. So everything that you see, like the brain that you have the questions with, I just made it. And so, like, here we are. And he, he creates this garden, this perfect paradise. And, and he makes man in a special way to reflect him in a special way uh, to be his image, to represent him in a way that nothing else in creation does. We're not just mammals. We are created in the image of God. We have inherent dignity, each and every one of us, no matter who we are or what we've done. We are born of God in in a special way. But in this perfect environment where there was no sin, um, something happened. I'd like to read uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. Now, this kind of pulls the curtain back that there's something else happening. So far, the spotlight has just been shown on earth and the things that God's been doing on earth, setting the, Gordon, Gordon, setting the garden in order um, and putting people in it to take care of it and, and to tend it and giving them work and things like that. But the serpent, like, I don't even know what we're talking about here. Like, what's happening? Like, this is a, a hint that there are things happening behind the scenes that he's not telling us everything that we could possibly, he could possibly tell us. The serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. So here at the beginning, you've got a perfect, and this this passage is calorie dense. Like I literally could probably talk about this for the rest of the day, but I'm trying not to. You've got a perfect environment and, and you've got a tempter that comes in, this serpent that comes in and he's asking like, can you actually trust God? Like, did God actually say that? Because it sounds like God's holding out on you. Sure, he made you in his image. He made you to be like him. But you could be more like him. You could know more. You could have all the knowledge that God has. Like, why don't you just, why don't you just take a little bit more? Just a little bit more. You could be more like God. And that idea was attractive to Eve. It may be attractive to us. I'm not sure that I would make different decisions. She says, okay, that's fine. And I looked at the tree, and the tree was good. And the fruit was good. It looked good. I don't know if it was a pomegranate or, or what it was. Probably what? I don't know if it was an apple or not. <clears throat> Probably not. I asked an, uh, an artificial intelligence thing um, that's, like, supposed to make images and things like that. I was like, hey, okay, paint me a picture of what the fruit of the garden of, uh, tree of the garden of good and evil. Yeah. Paint me that fruit and what it looked like. It looked kind of like a persimmon. in it. So the artificial intelligence thing that looks like a persimmon. I don't even know how to say the word right, but that's what it looks like, kind of an apricot thing. Anyway, I've lost you guys. (laughs) A serpent enters the kingdom and tempts those ruling on God's behalf to rebel. You've got an instance here where the kingdom of God is present and active. Creation is being properly governed by God according to his statutes and designs. And in this case, his statutes and designs were Adam and Eve were supposed to rule the garden. Adam was supposed to keep the garden, guard the garden, make sure that nothing uh, creepy crawly got into the garden. And yet here, he hasn't done his job because the serpent makes it in. And he doesn't do his job because he's standing there while the serpent's talking to his wife. And he's listening to the whole conversation. He doesn't interject. And then she eats and she doesn't keel over dead. He's like, well, maybe God was lying. And then when he bites it, then they understand. Then they introduce the brokenness that we all have suffered from since since this time. Everyone born of Adam has suffered under the curse of sin in one way or another. And it all started here. So uh, God is not inactive. He shows up and he pursues them. And God's in his grace, always calling out, where are you? He knows where they are, but he asks because he's a good father and we can trust him. He says, where are you? And then he uh, doles, out, uh, doles out some consequences in, in verse 14. Then Yahweh, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So he takes the, uh, he takes the serpent and he says, listen, you're, you're not going to travel the way that you normally travel. You are going to go on your belly now. Now, what's a snake or, or what's, what's a serpent that crawls on his belly? We call that a snake, right? If it had legs, what would it be? A lizard, like do we have lizards? So I'm not so sure that it had legs and now it doesn't have legs, like because we have those things. What if, what if the serpent had wings? What if the serpent had wings and now it's like, then it's fallen, it's gone from flying around and doing crafty things in the trees and now it's on its belly. We don't have flying snakes, do we? Not that I know of, right? <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> Candy knows something I don't know. She, she's got something working in her laboratory. Not yet. So after this rebellion, the tempter is cursed. He, he, I don't know that he went from being a lizard to being a snake. My suspicion, and I'll, it'll, I told you, we're going to get weird, okay? Just allow me a little bit of foolishness. My suspicion is he went from being a winged thing to a non-winged thing and now is humiliated, going from flying in the sky to eating the dust of the earth. And war, and, and what's interesting is that there's a war declared between the offspring of this serpent and the seed of the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise Heal the offspring there, her offspring is actually like in the Hebrew, it actually is seed. Biology class tells us that females don't have seed, that males have seed and females have eggs, right? Sperm and eggs. Like yeah, I went there. I told you we're getting weird. So what what is the seed of the woman if females don't have seed? I'll put enmity between your offspring, serpent's offspring, and the one who comes from the woman alone. She's going to have Cain, and she's going to have Abel, and she's going to think, like, Abel is my son. Like, he's the one that's going to deliver us from the curse of the serpent, but then Cain kills him. And then they have Seth together, and she thinks again, like, maybe Seth will be the one that delivers us. And no, it's the one who comes from Eve alone, the one born of the woman Who did not know a man that would bruise or that would crush the head of the serpent by bruising his heel? Right from the very beginning, right when the whole train went off the track, God knew how he was going to fix it. And he promises, I'm going to send one by woman, woman alone. Adam, send this one out. You, you clearly don't know what you're doing here. Like, just, just stop. Just send this one out. I will handle this. I will send one. But it's thousands of years. Like, if we just take the names of the Bible and we calculate generations, the minimum is 4,000 years from Eve until, uh, until Jesus is born. God is taking his time. Minimum 4,000 years. Like, I'm like, good night. I have to wait 20 minutes for this lasagna to cook. And then i got to wait another 30 for it to cool off. You know what I mean? Like, come on. But Jesus or God is waiting 4,000 years to send somebody. Okay, sorry. War is declared between the serpent offspring and the seed of the woman, but the, this is the hope of the restoration, and it was from the very beginning. They didn't leave the garden without this piece of hope. He promises that it's going to happen. And then he starts the story with Abe. We talked about Abe last week. And Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David. And then he puts everybody in timeout. And we would have talked extensively about Daniel, but I have chosen not to do that. (laughs) Um, here's, Here's our big idea. I don't know if it's in the right order here, Our big idea for the morning is that God knows his son will return to rule and he has not kept it secret. God knows his son will return to rule and he has not kept it secret. Go with me to Revelation chapter 12. It's at the very end of the book. We started in in the first book, we'll end in the last book. Revelation chapter 12, it's on page 1282. God knows his son will return to rule and has not kept it secret. (sighs) Revelation chapter 12 And a great sign appeared in heaven A woman clothed with the sun With the moon under her feet And on her head a crown of twelve stars And she was pregnant and was crying out In birth pains and the agony of giving birth And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who is about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So we just shifted to a really strange kind of a story. This is a a bit of um, biblical material that's uh, called... um, I can't even think of the word now. Apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. Thank you. Um, apocalyptic literature. It, it kind of describes a picture that we can't quite see. And so it'll sometimes use um, pictures and metaphors to describe something. And here we have a lady who, who is marked by a crown of 12... Uh, which could be Israel, perhaps, the one uh, uh, that Abe had. She's going to deliver a child, and the dragon wants to eat the child because he's the one who's going to rule over all the nations. The dragon wants to kill the child. The serpent wants to kill the the child that is being born. Imagine, just hypothetically, if all those angels showing up on those hilltops, the hosts of heaven, do you know host is actually a word for armies? Imagine these aren't angels, this isn't the choir of angels, but this is a battalion of angels sent to guard the Savior being born, because the enemy did not know when it would happen. He knew it was going to happen, but he didn't know when it would happen. And he might have known where it was going to happen, but all of this is happening underneath his nose, and he wants to destroy the child that's going to be born and yet God is protecting him we know we know he pulled some stuff with Herod and and that didn't work either like there's something that's happening behind the scenes at Christmas that I think sometimes we just gloss over that there was a war that there was enmity that there was strife between the children of the serpent the offspring of the serpent and the seed of the woman that it was war And the enemy wanted to devour the child that was born, and yet God, God's preserved the life of this small child. Let him grow up. And I wonder, like I wonder, how hidden Jesus was from the enemy. Like I wonder, when Jesus goes to be baptized by John the baptizer, and the heavens open up, and this voice comes down and says, "This is my son." I wonder if the enemy's like, "I knew he was here." Like. I didn't know where he was. And then as soon as that happens, every time you turn around, Jesus is casting out demons because all the demons are coming at him. Like, what if Jesus was hidden up until that point where the heavens and God said, this is my boy. Snap. I knew. And now battle's on. And he's got three years of this intense battle of of, of casting out demons and all this kind of, like, it just puts the life of Jesus in a different kind of a, a setting, doesn't it? That's not the end. In Revelation chapter 20, I saw this is fast forward all the way to the end of time. Is that I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it up and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So fast forward to the end of time and this, this Christmas dragon that wanted to eat the child gets bound up and can no longer uh, deceive on the earth. Like, that sounds pretty good. I'd, I'd be okay with that. <laughs> but humanity in our fallen state still rejects God. People still rebel against God, even without the enemy tempting us. It's almost like we're put back into the garden, but the, but the serpent's prohibited from coming in. And for a thousand years, there are those who are faithful to God, but then there are those that still rebel. The sickness is in us. We can't blame the serpent. He gets locked up. In chapter 7, when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he'll come out and deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. He gets a lot of people on his team. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever. So they're released, they get a a big army, and they show up for battle, and God just fries them. Done. I'm glad you all came together today. You made it a real easy target. Done. I'll save those, and everybody else is going to judgment, including the enemy. The enemy, the serpent, is bound. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. He sees everything. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you see creation, how do I word it? Do you see creation properly governed by God according to his statutes and design? You see everything in creation working the way it's supposed to. And men and women called up to judgment. Now, when we think judgment, we think, well, judge not lest ye be judged. Like, that's the only verse in the Bible that, that all of your non-Christian friends know is don't judge me, Right? <laughs> But the picture of judgment is actually a picture of harvest. So judgment is always tied into harvest. And, and so when you come to the judgment time, you're coming to the harvest time. And so all you're doing is you're just taking what you grew. If you watered your crop, if you sowed good seed and you watered your crop and you took good care of it, then harvest time is cool. Like, here's all the good stuff that I... And if you neglected and you planted late or you whatever, like you harvest and you get what you get. It's not judgment in like, ah, you're naughty. It's judgment in the sense of like, you reap what you sow. And I've said it a number of different times, God's not rude. If you build your life in such a way that he's not a part of it, he's going to honor that. But I don't think that we actually want to be taken out of a realm where God's grace, his common grace to all of us, just as, as, as people who were created in his image, is good. Like we have Everything we have that's good is a gift from him. There's this tension between earth and heaven, and it's finally resolved. God knows his son will return to rule, and he hasn't kept it secret. But this This cosmic battle is being played out uh, behind the scenes in every moment of our lives, in every corner of our world, in every decree that the government may make. There's something that's happening behind the scenes. Like, Like Jacob saw the connection between earth and heaven, so we too need to understand that there's something cosmic happening in the common moments of frustration in our family. And at this Christmas season where we get so fixated on so many different things, if I can just remind you that your life is not about you. It's not about what you want. not about what you can get. It's not about what we can accumulate. It's not even about what we can do to bless others. It's all about him. And our only hope on Christmas Day and every other day of the year is that our names are written in Jesus' record. How do you do that? How do you get your name in the book? It's a gift. It's a gift, and all you can say is, "I would like it, please." But it's not. You don't get it based upon the quality of your asking and the niceness of your pleasing. You don't get it on the basis of whether or not you could ever begin to repay the debt. It's just a gift. I asked uh, the students on Wednesday, I said, just imagine hypothetically you don't make it home tonight and, and you're standing in front of God and he says, you know, hey, what, why should I let you into heaven? I said, just think about it for a moment. Why, wh- what comes to mind? If God asks you today, why should I let you into heaven? What's, what's your answer? i let him chew on it for a minute. He so said, if your answer is anything other than Jesus said I could come, I don't have a good reason, but he said I could come and he made the way, then we're missing something. He's going to come and he's going to rule. He's going to bind the serpent, the great deceiver. He's going to throw him. He's going to take care of all that business. And I don't really understand it all. Like there's pictures here. And I don't know if we're talking about real snakes and dragons. Like I'm not 100% sure about how all all of these things work together. But I know and I'm confident that Jesus understands it clearly. And he promises that he's going to fix everything that's broken. And so that when push comes to shove, I'll lean on him. And I'd invite you to do the same. God knows his son will return to rule. He hasn't kept it secret, and so we share it together this week. And so just a couple of questions to think about in the quiet. Who are we living our life for this week? Have we asked Jesus to put our names in his book? And how will we walk with Jesus in the coming weeks? Let's pray together. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that it's um, deep. And God, I just pray, I pray that you would speak clearly through your word. Lord, in places where I've been confusing or places that I have uh, inserted my own opinion or been distracting, God, that you would just wipe all that out, but that your word would stand true. Lord, would you grow in us a trust of your word? Uh, And more so, would you help us to trust you? For the things we can understand, for the things that we can't understand, for the work that you've given to us to do, for the rest that you tell us we need, Lord, would you give us the gifts that we need? Would you help us to see what you're doing behind the scenes in every moment of our lives? Would you walk with us as we walk with you? In your way, till your kingdom come, your will be done in our hearts as it is in heaven. It's in your name we pray.